episode of Black Boy Joy Podcast. You're here with me, Ainsley. And also with me, Kieran. For LGBT History Month, or as Kieran and I like to call it, Black LGBT History Month, I think there's no better guest to have than to have someone who has actually made some Black LGBT history themselves. So for our guest this week is Jason Jones. He's an LGBT plus human rights defender. He is originally born in Trinidad and Tobago, but lives in the UK. Um, I actually think that we live very, very close to each other in a stretch of London. So welcome, I guess, welcome to our neighbour. Thank you very much. I'm really honoured to, to be with you. And uh, hi, hello to all the listeners. So, yes, I have actually, I've seen you both in person, I think, on the street, somewhere nearby and like floating around social media. So there is um, a Facebook group called UK Queer Men of Colour. I'm not sure if you, do you use Facebook, Kieran, actually. No, no, I used to and then I got rid of it, but okay. Instagram and Twitter, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen, I've, um, I've seen, I've read like some of your regular posts on that, keeping us all up to date. And you yes. have like quite an active uh, social media, social media game as well, so... Yeah, yes. it's kind of like, yeah, it's, only, it's literally was only a matter of time until you were ending, end, going to end up on Blackboard Joy podcast. So what, what a better time than now, I guess. Great, good. I'm, I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased. So I guess first order of business would be to ask how you've been coping with all of this lockdown or this coronavirus madness that's been going on. Well, I've, I've been working on my own for many years now. I first started... I first embarked on the legal challenge in Trinidad and Tobago back in 2015. And uh, my challenge is completely uh, run by myself. I, I, I work completely on my own. So being locked down in my little bed sit in Streatham has been you know, the norm for the last five, six years. So it ha- hasn't been hugely impactful on my day-to-day routine, but obviously it has impacted a great deal on uh, social interaction. And I, I do miss you know, the interaction with, with human beings. <laughs> so, course, yeah. and, and I think you know, one of the things that uh, uh, I have noticed, particularly with single people who live alone, and, you know, there's a lot of us in, in the UK. Um, yeah, for sure, we, we do suffer a lot from the isolation. So um, I, I do have a little community that we stay in touch and we, we try and look after each other using social media. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's, um, that's great. I think, yeah, so if you say that, like, you've got, you sound as if you've been, like, immersed in your work. So maybe the kind of, like, time spent alone or not with as many people had, might not have hit you as hard as it's hit other people. No. <laughs> and as you said, I'm, I'm very active on social media. So, you know, my, my community really is an online community. And a lot of the work that I do is at international level. So, you know, this kind of uh, interaction uh, is not unusual for me. So it's not been as difficult a, a, a transition as I know it's been for many others. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, you mentioned your uh, your international work, so I think that's a, that's um, a great place to a great place to go into that. 
um, you might be actually one of the first people we've had on uh, that Boy Doe podcast. We've had a Wikipedia page <laughs> that goes into some oh, yeah. detail. <laughs> <laughs> believe, believe me, it blows my mind that I have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> you know, when, when that happened, I was just like, what the? <laughs> it, 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 I, I did feel very kind of like wow you you reach you know mm, so yeah I but, uh, but I don't know if you know this but my Wikipedia page was vandalized uh, two years ago I was <laughs> I was in the uh, I, I did a talk in Vancouver Canada and uh, I was embroiled in a, a, a major drama in Vancouver Canadian LGBT society. Um, I won't go into the details of it, but somebody vandalized my my page, which was also quite shocking. So uh, yeah, I've, I've, it's been a bit of an adjustment for me to go from from just to a, a community activist, which is what I've done for the last thirty years, to now having you know some some form of attention that's uh, way above and beyond what I'm used to. So it, it has it has been an adjustment. Yeah, I imagine that transition would definitely be a, definitely one hundred percent be an adjustment. And how I don't know how it would feel mm-hmm. like if you just lived your life and all of a sudden there's all of this information about you that's on um on like a public domain that you didn't write. <laughs> yeah, I, I I honestly I'm I'm I'm. Uh, I'm 56 this year, and I'm very glad that it that it, that it all happened at that age because I'm now I'm now at an age where that kind of stuff doesn't impact on me a great mm. deal. But um, it has it has its drawbacks. I mean, obviously, I'm a target for every Tom, Dick, and Crazy Larry, and also, unfortunately, within the LGBT community itself. Um, there are a lot of people that, that that are very negative towards the work that I do for a myriad of reasons, and of course, as as uh, I become more successful, you know, so 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 do the attacks increase. So it, it, mm. it's it's a it's a bit of navigating to, to yeah. get through it all, and uh, yeah. I'm I'm very pleased that I, I'm aged now where I can navigate and doesn't impact on me as heavily so jason i'm going to ask um how sort of if you could describe your route into the actors activism that you do and sort of what motivations you had as well well i i first came to london in 1985 uh, uh okay. wide-eyed bushy-tailed 21 year old and uh when i when i moved to london i'm, I'm dual citizen i have dual citizenship my mother is white english and my dad is black uh trinidadian so i have dual citizenship and when I left Trinidad in 1985, it really was more of an escape from, from very homophobic, toxic, homophobic uh, uh, abuse that I was facing from society. And I was um, in the theater and you know, I did dance and ballet, all, all the classic uh, gay, gay uh, classic things that, that attract Outlets. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, of course, I, I I was quite effeminate when I was younger. So um, you know, these were the days of flash dance. So I I was wearing the flash dance, you know, off the shoulders, purple sweatshirt with purple purple ballet leg warmers, and you know, I, so I, I I was pretty much <laughs> a very visible target in Trinidad. And uh, back then, also, of course, uh, it it was the height of the HIV/AIDS pandemic, and uh, unfortunately, Trinidad had the second highest uh, mortality rate from HIV AIDS in the world per capita 
we were second only to New York City. So a lot of my friends were dying around me and I felt very suffocated in Trinidad. And very luckily I had dual citizenship so I could escape to London. So I, I, it literally was an escape to mm. breathe and to find a life as an openly gay man. I mean, I, I, I was outed by my parents when I was 14 because I was suffering homophobic abuse at the um, prestigious boys that I attended in, in Poland. And uh, my parents were both, you know, journalists. My father is the first black television announcer in the entire global south. He um, actually trained Trevor McDonald back in those days in Trinidad. So my parents sat me down when I was 14 and explained what homosexuality was and that this was the abuse that I was receiving. Because, you know, when people were being abusive to me, I didn't even know what homosexuality was. <laughs> you know, so I'm being accused of something. Yeah. I'm like, but I... I don't even know what it means. <laughs> so my parents kind of sat me down and, and uh, were very honest about everything and explained to me what homosexuality was. And my mother was, was uh, it's a derogatory term now, but my mother was quite the fag hag in her day. And she was friends with a lot of gay men in Trinidad. And uh, so there was a real support network from, from my parents. And uh, I, I was able to um, face the bullying that way. But once I turned 21, that was it. I was out of there. So when I came to London, it was the Emerald City. This was, you know, a, a freedom that I'd never experienced before. And, and the gay scene in London was incredibly vibrant then. Um, even with HIV AIDS, mm. there was um, a lesbian and gay center in, in, a, um, in Cowcross Street. Um, and, you know, there was a very vibrant community, particularly uh, the Black gay community. There was much more... Uh, unity and there was a lot more interaction between uh, black and um, lesbian and gay people in the, at that time. So for me, it was, you know, three years of utter bliss. And then, of course, in 1988, uh, Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative government passed the draconian Section 28 legislation. And for the listeners that don't know what Section 28 was, it was a law that prohibited the promotion of homosexuality. So that meant libraries couldn't stock books, um, school teachers couldn't even utter the, any, any, anything about homosexuality. So it left the community absolutely shattered. And at that point, a number of um, uh, quite famous LGBT people came out of the closet, uh, Michael Cashman, um, Ian McKellen and others and started marching against Section 28. And, and at those marches, I attended those marches, and that really was the genesis of me becoming an activist and, and becoming vocal. Because, you know, I, I kind of had, had the rug swept out from under me, you know, mm -hmm. uh, coming to, to safety in London, and then all of a sudden uh, having that, that, that awful, awful law come into power, into place. My, my background in Trinidad was also very much uh, um, being surrounded by people who were activists, particularly um, around uh, black, black power and black rights in Trinidad. Um, my stepfather, Rex LaSalle, was one of the army lieutenants um, who mutinied when uh, the army was ordered to go and quell unrest by black power revolutionaries. So I, you know, my, 
my parents were very close friends with C.L.R. James. You know, 1984, when Nina Simone came to Trinidad, I spent three weeks with her, driving her around the island. Oh, wow. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> She's like my absolute fave. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so, I mean, it was Nina, it was actually Nina Simone who told me to get off, in her words, get off this rock, Jason, she said to me. You know, Nina, Nina came from a very small town and, you know, small island life and small towns in America, very similar in the, in the kind of mindset. And it was, mm -hmm. it, she was very encouraging of me getting off of Trinidad and, and going and seeking my fortune out in the wide world as she did. So she had a huge impact on me. And of course, she was a very powerful black power um, uh, uh, revolutionary. So I, I was very blessed that I had people like, like that around me. And, you know, my DNA definitely was, uh, was uh, made up of, of these people, these powerful black people who, you know, took no shit. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it only would lead on that when, when I was more openly gay and more more in a space to be openly politically gay mm -hmm. yeah that, that definitely was something that i had to do i see first of all i think there are a lot of things that you said that then that you probably won't realize was a bit of like a revelation to me because i think like from us thinking of like the 80s london i'm if someone asked me like was there much of a gay community i don't i wouldn't know what to tell them Mm. Um, back then, like anywhere, to be honest with you, in London, of in the Caribbean, um, we're from Birmingham. So even that in itself is, some, is something for, for us to learn that we didn't know about before necessarily, that there were these groups here of like um, black queer people who were happy about it and were able to be open. I think yes. in our community, you only ever hear about like it being a source of shame or people being DL or things like that. But that in itself yeah. is something, yeah. Yeah, it's something I didn't actually I actually didn't know. It is it is uh, sadly one of the issues that I think our community faces, and you know the the, the uh, oral tradition of Black culture was cut short by HIV/AIDS. You know we lost a generation of Black gay men, um, and so you know that that oral tradition of handing that passing that that baton, you know, was disconnected. And of course, then after after HIV/AIDS, you know, we now went into um, this era of social media and um, uh, the internet. And I think the internet has also created a great disconnect of what used to be the way that our communities would interact. You know, you, you had to get out into the events that were happening. You went to visit people. Now, you know, you, you hook up on Grindr, you hook up on, on one of the apps or you, or you, talk on Facebook or you talk on Snapchat, you know, so th there were two major disconnects that I think our, our community has suffered. And I'm, I'm hoping that as we come out of this pandemic, that we will start to connect with each other and podcasts like yours and, you know, Josh, this is discussions and opening up these, these conversations. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. So if I've got this right, you've, um, you were in Trinidad, you moved to uh, London, and you kind of, it, it seemed if um, you were in and around the uh, protest of the Section 28 law introduced by Thatcher, then you went back to Trinidad, is that correct? 
Yeah, I, I, I kind of, uh, my, my life has, has been pretty uh, nomadic and uh, I've lived in a number of different countries and I go back home for uh, big, big gaps as well because, um, you know, it is my, my, my home and, and I do feel that uh, my, my roots need recharging. So I've been home <laughs> for, <laughs> for a couple of times. And, uh, you know, to be very honest with you, when I went back home in 1992, it was with the feeling that I was probably going to die. You know, at that point I had stopped uh, testing for HIV because I had had two lovers die and I just thought well that's it so it, it, you know it, it has been a life that, that uh, has been uh, nomadic for a number of different reasons. I went home in 1992 and spent three years at home. During that time I was one of the co-founders of the first um, LGBT uh, advocacy group in the Southern Caribbean we were called Lambda and then mm -hmm. over about a year and a half of that period, we lost over 50% of the board members to HIV AIDS. Um, I also met my then partner in Trinidad. And after my mother's death in 1996, I said to him, well, listen, you know, we, we could go and spend two years in the UK. At that point, they had what was called the Young Persons Commonwealth Visa. So everybody from the former colonies under the age of 29 was allowed two years um, to come and visit the mother country. So he said, yeah, of course, I'd love to spend that two years in the UK and get to know, you know, your mother's home and, you know, the, the, mm. and live that European life. And within within six months of, of the two of us living in the in, in London, he said, listen, I don't ever want to go home again. You know, um, how we are treated here in the UK as a gay couple is, is how I want to live. So we then joined an organization called the Stonewall Immigration Group. Uh, they, they've had a change of name. They're now known as the United Kingdom Lesbian and Gay Immigration Group. And that group was founded to try and get the rights for the overseas partner of uh, lesbian and gay uh, UK nationals uh, residency based upon your relationship. Now, this was, uh, um, it, it wasn't based on marriage. It was based on cohabitation. But this was allowed for straight couples, but it didn't respect uh, same-sex couples. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the organization was created to try and lobby to get same-sex couples the same recognition and the same immigration rights. And uh, Mark Watson and Wesley Grick, who were the main driving forces of the organization, um, were doing uh, uh, quiet backdoor lobbying with the Labour government, who were in opposition at the time. And we promised them gay votes if they passed this immigration regulation. And lo and behold, uh, Labour came into uh, power in a landslide victory in 1997 under Tony Blair. And three months mm -hmm. later, they kept their promise and they passed the law. Uh, my partner and I were one of the 40 test cases at the home office for two years. They kept our passports. And uh, um, my partner, a Trinidad and Tobago citizen, was then given residency based on our four years cohabitation. And uh, this was the first positive gay legislation in the United Kingdom post decriminalization in 1968. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 30 years it took Britain to do something positive for the LGBT community. And the first thing it did was for uh, the immigration rights of the overseas partners. So this was a big, huge moment. A lot of people don't know this. Um, and of course, me and my partner were incredibly proud to have been able to have been part of, of creating that change. 
Um, so I, I, I have the, I am the only person on the planet who has been able to change the law in two countries based on, on for LGBT uh, equality, which I'm very proud of. Okay, well, that's a massive achievement. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Basically, they said there were two pieces of legislation that were changed in order to uh, to accommodate LGBT people. Um, we've just discussed one, but I think the one that um, yes. in Trinidad and Tobago. Well, Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago, like all of the Caribbean, a former, all of the English-speaking Caribbean, are former colonies of Britain. And we inherited all of the British colonial era laws. And one of them, of course, is the buggery law. Um, the buggery law, the history of the buggery law, just, just for people to understand, was created by Henry VIII in 1533. It is the first anti-gay legislation ever in the world. Um, and it was created by Henry VIII in order to um, murder the priests and monks of the Roman Catholic Church. He was trying to destroy the Roman Catholic Church's hold over his court. So by uh, criminalizing uh, sex between males, he was then able to go into Roman Catholic monasteries and, and uh, murder priests and monks and uh, take their property and wealth. So this whole thing started with Henry VIII and his quest for a male heir. Um, of course, Britain then becoming a colonial power spread these laws across three quarters of the planet. And even today, out of the 70 plus countries that have the uh, laws against LGBT people, over 50% of them are former colonies of Britain. So in 2015, I went to uh, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Malta as part of a delegation uh, with uh, the Commonwealth Equality Network, which is a group of, um, which is a, an umbrella group for LGBT advocates from around the Commonwealth to start fighting at Commonwealth level because over 30 Commonwealth countries have the similar laws. So I had gone to Chogham and this was the first time in history that a Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting hosted um, LGBT uh, uh, platforms. So we did two platforms in the uh, People's Forum around LGBT rights in the Commonwealth. And as, as powerful as that was, I came away feeling very empty because in the communique after Chogham, of course, there was nothing about LGBT rights. Uh, our leaders across the Commonwealth are either incredibly homophobic or their populations are incredibly homophobic. So it's very difficult um, to get LGBT rights uh, um, through parliamentary uh, procedures. So this is when I came back to London and I said, right, I'm gonna take the country to court. Um, in, it, it, in terms of uh, the legality of my challenge, why it is such a, such a special case, uh, is that uh, within the constitutions of many former colonies of Britain, after we became independent, we inserted into our constitution something savings law clause. And clause insulates uh, any laws that predated our independence. Now, there are lots of different ideas around why we would have such uh, anti-independence <laughs> legislation being inserted into newly independent countries. But I, I suspect um, the reason was to prevent a rash of challenges such as mine happening to, to them as they became newly independent. But, you know, 
nearly 60 years on to have a, a savings law clause that prevents challenges of, of laws is quite undemocratic. So mm-hmm. most lawyers, I mean, pretty much 100% of lawyers and constitutional uh, professionals all said that this challenge could not happen because of the savings law clause. The buggery law came under the, the protection of the savings law clause. Very luckily, uh, the, the lawyers that, that, that I was able to engage on this found a loophole, uh, which was that uh, in 1986, uh, the parliament of Trinidad and Tobago went into the law and extended the jail time. So the original jail time under the British colonial era law was 10 years, and they went in and extended it. Twice, actually, they went into the law and extended the jail time. So it's not, it, w- it was, by the time they had finished, 25 years. So my lawyers argued that because parliamentarians had gone into the law and had modified it, then the law can no longer be continu- con- considered to be saved under the original uh, mm-hmm. uh, that makes sense. Law. Yeah. Yeah, of course, it made sense to me, and I'm not a lawyer. So I knew I was going to win this because I knew that the, the general feeling uh, within the, the, the legal fraternity and parliamentarians that this law really needs to go. It, it, it has no place in a modern democracy. Mm. So I, knew I, would, I had that support going in. I knew I had fantastic lawyers. I mean, my legal team is absolutely brilliant. I mean, this case has cost close to one million pounds. And all of us, myself and the, the legal team, we pro bono to get this done. But um, it's it's a big it was a big undertaking. But I I knew going in that that I I would be successful. I wouldn't have done it if I if I didn't think so. Yeah, where do you get the energy to um to fight such big battles? <laughs> you know, I I I I'm really really blessed to have had you know the the people in my life that I've had. You know, both my parents were incredibly powerful communicators. You know, watching my dad every night at 7 p.m. reading the news, you know, uh, as I said, you know, Nina Simone, C.L.R. James, you know, these were all people that were part of my life in, mm. in very meaningful ways. And, and that, you know, I stand on the shoulders, I literally stand on the shoulders of giants. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think it would be more of a, it would be an absolute shame if I didn't uh, achieve something uh, uh, on top of on top of their shoulders, you know, it, it really was, I, I think I, I would have been very disappointed at the end of my life not to have achieved something of yeah. not, because yeah. <laughs> I had too much of a jump, uh, a diving board to, to, to not respect that history of, of my ancestors. Mm-hmm. The, um, the legal challenge uh, for, for, for Trinidad was that it was to decriminalize buggery and sort of, um, Sort of being openly homosexual. What did it cover that as well? What did it cover? It 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 decriminalized all uh, consensual adult um, same sex intimacy. Um, there were mm-hmm. two laws that I challenged. One was the buggery law, which we all know is is about anal sex. Um, of interest, um, that law also criminalized anal sex between heterosexual couples. So I have mm-hmm. had 
private messages from heterosexual couples saying thank you. <laughs> but yes, heterosexual people do engage in anal sex as well. Um, the other law that I that uh, I and my team decriminalized was Section 16, which uh, is a very draconian draconian law that was passed by Trinidad and Tobago Parliament in 1986 again. Um, called sexual indecency, which criminalized all acts of um, uh, mutual masturbation. So that law was created specifically to criminalize lesbians. So, um, mm. you know, I, interestingly, uh, my lawyer said, Jason, you can't challenge this. And I said, yes, I'm going to challenge it. And of course, in court, <laughs> of course, in court, the, uh, the uh, attorney general's advocate said to the judge, well, Mr. Jones can't challenge this law. He, he's, he's not a woman. He doesn't have a vagina. And the judge said, no, I understand what Mr. Jones is doing. He's, he's absolutely fine to challenge both the laws. And, and I decriminalize that as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much a feminist, and there was no way I would only fight for gay men. I, I was very keen to ensure that, that the law criminalizing lesbian sex was decriminalized as well. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Um, so, during, so, so during the process, I think it was in 2018 when they made the ruling, um, you were based in London. Did you, were you sort of back and forth to yes. Trinidad during that time, or? And how was it when you were there? Um, did you, I'm assuming you maybe got some kind of oh, media yeah, attention, I, I, I would imagine. Like. <laughs> a lot of media attention. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, yeah it, I mean, this is the first time in our history, you know, we're, we're, we're a very young democracy, uh, nearly 60 years old. And this was the first time in history that an, an individual citizen had uh, made a mark on our constitution. So for Trinidad and Tobago citizens, um, I think what people have taken away from it more than the LGBT aspect of it was the democracy of it. The fact that one man can have an impact on our constitution. So I then received a lot of messages from people saying, oh, how do I decriminalize marijuana? Oh, how do I do this? How do I do that? <laughs> and that is one of the big powerful things that I think people need to understand about what I do is the empowerment of the individual. You know, we, we unfortunately, uh, we have become very much uh, NGOized and it, it all has to be community action. It has to be a group has to do this, you know, and I, I fully understand, you know, the bargaining power of collective bargaining power. But at the same time, we also have to recognize the power of the individual and the fact that one man standing up or one man sitting down on a bus. These are powerful things that drive drive us forward. And mm -hmm. a lot of the antagonism towards the LGBT community within the black community is this idea of LGBT being a white foreign global mm -hmm. north thing that's being yes. shoved down. Yeah. Their yeah. yeah. So it was really important for me to ensure that people understood no i am a person of color i am a trinbegonian and i am doing this for me i am not part of a group i'm not part of an agenda this is about my basic human rights and my equality as a trinidad and tobago citizen so that message was something that i was very very uh, powerful on on driving through and it really took the sting out of it you know a lot of there, was, there, there were a lot of groups that came after me and I have become the figurehead of a lot of revision, a, a lot of uh, uh, hatred. But what I thought very clearly in terms of the advocacy that should go along with my case was 
I wanted people to understand this was about my rights as an individual. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think it has been very empowering for, for a lot of citizens. And, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I think when we talk about human rights, uh, a lot of people forget the human part of it, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I do try to work as much as possible as uh, to underline the fact that I'm, I am just a man and I'm just fighting for my my rights as a human being. Mm -hmm. So with you decriminalizing the anti-boggery laws in Trinidad and Tobago, is there like has there been any follow-on from that so is there like anything are there any new challenges that come about as a result of what you've done or anything of that nature um well well firstly i only want at the first sitting i won at the high court uh the attorney general has now appealed that victory so i have the case will be heard at the appeal court of Trinidad and Tobago. And then whoever loses will then appeal to the Privy Council. Our, our Supreme Court is still the Privy Council here in the United Kingdom. I only filed this case because I knew it would come to the Privy Council and I'm, I'm pretty assured of, of victory at the Privy Council. This yeah. is the first time in history that the Privy Council will hear an LGBT decriminalization case, shockingly. And uh, the, the Privy Council is the third highest Supreme Court in the democratic world. The first, of course, being the United States Supreme Court, which decriminalized homosexuality. Um, actually, very recently, the, the, the final state to decriminalize homosexuality in the US was in 2003, shockingly. And um, then, of course, uh, the, the, the next highest Supreme Court in, in the democratic free world is India. And India um, decriminalized in 2018, four months after my, five months after my victory, and interestingly, uh, that victory used the Jason Jones judgment um, uh, in part of the arguments to, to secure victory in the Indian Supreme Court judgment. So this judgment in the Privy Council, I'm pretty much assured of decriminalizing uh, homosexuality, not only for Trinidad and Tobago, but um, it will have legal precedent for uh, 11 countries. So this judgment will decriminalize all of the English-speaking Caribbean. And interestingly, Mauritius has filed a, a challenge of their um, buggery law, again, former British colony of Britain, and Mauritius mm -hmm. will fall under my judgment. So I will, I will, uh, my judgment will have decriminalized over 55 million people across two continents. So it's a, it's a very big deal and I'm incredibly proud. Yeah, as you should it's be. <laughs> so, um, as you're saying, a lot of these laws, they're, they're sort of remnants from colonialism. So whereas Britain tries to see itself as progressive now and in, in like pushing for rights, it's like, but what's happened in the past has, has left this like mark on so many other places, mm -hmm. uh, having to abide by sort of these old sort of draconian laws that that this country's kind of like left a mess behind. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and shockingly. Mm or maybe not shockingly, the UK government has done nothing to assist me. I've done this case completely independently. Um, all of my lawyers work pro bono, I work pro bono, and all the costs, because even though we all work for free, I am liable for all of the costs. I mean, my, my photocopying bill for the court case was £3,500. And I alone am liable for all of those costs. I, I pay for all the flights for my lawyers to go to court in Trinidad, their hotel bills, everything. I pay for everything. Um, so I raise funds to do that on, uh, I do crowdfunding and uh, donations, you know, beg, borrow, steal. I've sold, yeah. you know, family heirlooms to be able to do this work. And British government has lifted not one finger 
to assist me. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, just to echo what you and Kieran have said, that um, the anti-buggery laws, anti-LGBT laws in the Caribbean, you just, like I said, just one of the, one of the many legacies of colonialism that um, seems to have kind of made an, a collective amnesia Absolutely. in the UK. And it is one thing that needs to be remembered when, uh, when we think of the when we think of the UK, we think of like its um, its impact on other countries, which we don't which we don't do. You just mentioned that you were you've been raising money. Do you have any active crowd funds open now? Well, not at the moment because, uh, as I said, we're waiting on a court date at the the appeal court in Trinidad and Tobago. As soon as I have that date, I will do another crowdfunding campaign because to pay for flights. I, I always go home when all of it is happening so that my feet are on the ground because I don't want people saying, oh, well, you know, he's some some fellow over in mm -hmm. London, that yeah. guy have nothing to do with us. So I, I'm, I'm very, I, I always uh, am at home when it's happening. And also in terms of media presence, you know, the media of course follows this case very closely. And uh, it's important to be there and, you know, be able to face the questions and answer the mm -hmm. questions, you know, face to face. You know, this is, I, I don't think uh, people uh, really understand how huge this is in Trinidad. You know, we are a um, very small island and mm -hmm. over 90%, over 98% of our, our nation are of African or Indian heritage. And our culture is a very macho culture and it's a very religious culture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this case challenges all the preconceived ideas of, of race and religion. You know, it challenges every, everyone. And it has polarized society a great deal. You know, uh, people are, are very much for or against uh, this, this, this um, uh, human rights issue. So it, it, it is a big moment for, for the Caribbean. And, you know, I, I, I feel very uh, um, empowered to be able to do this work. And, but at the same time, I think what also is important is the fact that I have one foot in each place because, you know, we, we also have to recognize that I am safe here in the United Kingdom. You know, we're relatively safe, um, mm -hmm. but, in Trinidad, I, I, my life is in danger. I have to, I have to watch my back. You know, the death threats that are made against me are very real. And unfortunately, you know, when you have the, that kind of issue, I'm very lucky that I'm able to keep a foot in, in each place and protect my life and, and also my quality of life. You know, I, I would not have anybody do this if they were living in the society at the same time. I mean, we've seen too many examples of LGBT activists who have either been verbally or physically assaulted and, and in fact, some lose their lives. I mean, if you think of David Cato in Uganda, I mean, this was a, a gay black man hacked to death in his own home. Um, so yeah, it, it, the work, is dangerous for sure mm -hmm. and i'm very lucky that i'm able to do it from from a sense of safety here in the yeah. uk for sure yeah um that kind of does bring me to one of the questions that i did want to ask i think us um of the kieran and i are both caribbean men ourselves kieran is jamaican is that right yeah, almost half is Jamaican. Yeah, yeah here is Jamaican. I'm half Jamaican and Kittitian. So I'm like half small island as well. And I think that we have like a preconception of the Caribbean. 
of it being just like wildly homophobic, I guess from like, from things that you see, from bits of media that you hear from the Caribbean. And I kind of wanted to ask if like, if in Trinidad, whether it does live up to that or, or if, if things have changed um, over the amount of time. Well, you know, I, I think this polarized idea of homophobia and homophobic examples is, is one of the big um, difficulties with doing this kind of advocacy, you know, because on the one hand, um, I do know trans women who have been murdered in Trinidad. I, I know them as personal friends. I know of gay men, close friends of mine who have been murdered um, and no police response to it. There isn't security support for the LGBT community. Um, one of my very, very closest friends for 40 years was murdered in his own home a year and a half ago. And uh, when uh, a, a police officer approached me to say that he thought that there was a serial killer uh, targeting gay men in Trinidad. Um, this is a police officer with 20 years service of the Trinidad Tobago Police Service, and uh, he is secretly gay himself. And he reached out to me through a mutual friend to say, you know, I, I suspect there's a serial killer on the loose. We had had over, 40, over a dozen gay men murdered over a four-year period, um, all in very similar circumstances. It, it looks like a kind of grinder killer who's using Grinder and Adam mm. for Adam uh, to lure these men to their deaths. So, mm. you know, he went to his uh, uh, um, uh, captain, his, his superior, to, to say, you know, I, I think he's uh, linked. And his superior commanding officer said, if somebody is killing, well, he used a derogatory uh, homophobic term in the Caribbean, if somebody killing bullets, they, they, they are doing the Lord's work. Mm. So yeah. this is, you know, on the one hand, you have that, but then on the other hand, you have you know the the, the flag and coat of arms of Trinidad and Tobago was designed by a gay man, a gay uh, Chinese Trinbagonian, Carlisle Chang. You have very famous uh, actors, very famous musicians, very famous carnival designers who are all LGBT, very wealthy pe LGBT people who live very comfortable lives, but. Uh, none of them are politically gay. Uh, you know, we have that glass closet gay system in the Caribbean where it's okay to be, you know, fashion designer, be super camp carnival designer, but to be politically gay is an absolute no-no. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we have to understand these nuances that, that happen in the Caribbean and we see the same thing happening in African countries as well that have these laws. So mm -hmm. it's, two, it's two sides of the same coin and we need to focus on, on both, you know? And yes, it's absolutely right to talk about the terrorizing of LGBT people in the Caribbean because that is the lived experience for, for some of us. But mm -hmm. conversely, there's also in places like Trinidad, a great deal of respect and admiration and safety for LGBT people at certain sectors of society. So it, it's two things and, you know, both live side by side and both need to be aired and ventilated. One thing I am starting to learn in, in my almost 30 years of life is that pretty much everything in life is nuanced and it kind of sounds like a similar situation with, uh, kind of with LGBT people in the Caribbean. But from the way you described it, it sounds like to me as if yes. it's almost as if you can be LGBT as long as like you're not like kind of like, you're not threatening the way that the way that like people live their lives like on the kind of on a uh, macro scale like 
Um, exactly. Societal, if you do, if there is any threat to that or any threat to people's ideals, that's when there is real danger for the person. Well, you know, similar similar to the United Kingdom in, in the 50s and 60s, before mm -hmm. uh, the decriminalization of homosexuality, you had these very camp gay men who everybody knew, you know, that they were gay, you know, Larry Grayson, um, uh, Kenneth, uh, Kenneth, oh God, Kenneth, I've forgotten his name. But anyway, there were these very camp gay men on television and radio and everybody knew they were gay, but they were, they were camp and they were unthreatening, you know? So mm -hmm. it's very similar in the Caribbean, you know, at, at, of the same era, that if you're unthreatening, then yeah, fine, you know, be camp, you know, that, that's fine. But if you are anywhere uh, political and asking for your equality, uh, as I am doing, challenging laws in court, then yeah, it becomes very threatening to people. Very, very threatening to people. Yeah, it's almost almost as, as if they have to be a caricature to be accepted, or to um, you know, to not kind of face any threat. Yeah. Um, do you think exactly uh, from from your time in Trinidad? Do you think it's a generational thing, whereas the younger generation might be more open, or do you think it's it's so embedded in the culture it's not going to be changing that much for now in the next twenty years or so? Um, I used to think it was generational. I've, I've changed my mind on that because the homophobia that you're seeing on the playgrounds of United Kingdom show that it, it's it's not just generational. There is something that is uh, intrinsic. In, in, in homophobia that, that transcends generation. It just, it just is part of, of our DNA. Um, I don't know what that is. I don't know why gay people challenge uh, straight society. Maybe it's, it's uh, a thing about how, how we see uh, family life. Um, I remember, you know, when, when I first um, was openly gay, you know, my my father's um, he didn't wasn't bothered by homosexuality. What what worried him was the fact that I would be alone in my older years. And of course, now I'm in my older years and I am alone. I understand what his fear was. You know, for a lot of people, um, that whole children thing is a very big deal, and particularly in in black culture, you know, your your uh, old age pension are your kids. You yes, know? yeah, insurance so, policy. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It, it's a very big deal. And, uh, um, you know, one of the other reasons why I live in the United Kingdom is uh, I don't have an insurance policy in Trinidad. I have no family. You know, my family excommunicated me um, a, a long time ago when I became very vocally, uh, openly LGBT. So I don't have the insurance policy in the Caribbean. You know, here in the United Kingdom, very luckily, we do have a social welfare system that I know will look after me in my old age, you know. Mm -hmm. So it, for LGBT people who, who have lost that family connection, particularly in the Black community, we do become very isolated. And I see a lot of um, uh, Black LGBT people here in the United Kingdom who go into care in older years having to go back into the closet because the care system is homophobic here in the United Kingdom. So you're dealing with racism and homophobia in your old age. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are all issues that um, as I get older, definitely I, <laughs> I start to face and, and start to challenge. You know, this is something that our community is not challenging. You know, what are, what are our older uh, 
LGBT siblings going through, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, that is actually something maybe um, quite short-sighted that I've actually never considered before. If if you are growing older as an LGBT person, like what does that look like? Um, I guess yeah, you made uh, you made a good point that if you don't necessarily have children, then um, then you are I guess like how would you be reliant to still be able to live? And um, if you are reliant on maybe on the care sector or on um, these things to help you, like are they actually helping you or are they doing this one thing, which means you often have to shrink parts of your own, your identity, which to be honest, I think is uh, something that we're quite, we, that we'll have experience of as queer people, especially queer black people. And I think yes. that's probably the case in the UK and, um, and in the Caribbean islands as well. I was gonna say, I'd not considered it either, especially when you mentioned them having to go back in the closet when you think you get to a certain age where you don't have to deal with like the kind of nonsense that you've had to put up with throughout your life. And mm-hmm. then you made the point of, it might, in many cases, if they have lived an out life, they may be sort of, they may be estranged from their family. Um, and it's really not, it's yes. really not something I've never, ever, my mind's never thought on. Well, you know, ageism, ageism is a huge issue in uh, the LGBT community. You know, I, I remember being at fire fire club a couple of years back with a friend who uh, doesn't look as fabulous as I do which is at our age <laughs> and, uh, some little twink <laughs> some, some vile little twink uh, went up to him and said get off the dance floor grandpa it's our turn it's our time and he just uh, he literally ran to the bathroom and wept you know and this is what we face in the LGBT community. You know, I, I think ageism, ableism is another issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have no rights to be ignoring the, the elderly in our community. And unfortunately in British society, the elderly are really thrown, uh, cast aside in, mm-hmm. in, in our community. And uh, hopefully mm-hmm. as we come out of this pandemic, um, I, I hope when people feel the isolation as a young person, you start to think mm. about the isolation of our elderly. No, I agree. And it's, I think there's an obsession with youth and it's all about how you look, um, and which feeds into the ageism. But, mm-hmm. um, and also, I think, because if, you, what, if, you, if you're below a certain age now and you've like spent all your life in Britain, as a gay person um, or anyone in the LGBTQ community, like, things are comparatively easier well, much easier yes. than they were about 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I know everyone still yeah. say, oh, there's still challenges and still struggles and everything, but compared to the 80s, for example, in the midst of the AIDS crisis, um, we have it quite easy. And I think, because people aren't yeah. aware of that massive change, that, that could, you know, motivate someone to go up to someone and be so rude like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was yeah. sad to hear your friend cried, which which is a fine reaction, but I was hoping you were suddenly punched him in the face, but um, obviously. Oh. <laughs> that's probably what happened. I was like, hoping to hear like a yeah. like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Jason Jones punches Twink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I, I I have no fear of punching somebody. <laughs> <laughs> just to just to close on that point, I I really do hope that people listening uh, to the podcast and and other other things like this and other people speaking is that our, our community it needs to be stronger in terms of fighting for for our elderly, fighting for 
uh, our disabled, fighting for people that don't don't fit the classic um, mm -hmm. images uh, that we have that we continue to propagate around around what looks right for for mm -hmm. being queer today, um, and that really you know as you as you said that these advances they made us very lazy. Mm. You know, the average age for, for a trans, uh, for a black trans woman is 35 years old, mm -hmm. the average age expectancy. That is horrendous. And, you know, we as a community are not, are not doing nearly enough to support our trans siblings. Mm -hmm. So, yes, that's my rant. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to our elder in our community, I said it in our last podcast episode that um, could, me for one, it wasn't until I like really came out of the closet and um, and that uh, we started doing this podcast that I even knew there was a community of um, of like black LGBT people who were older, who were over fifty, mm. and I think for us it's like so important that these people are here, that they live their lives, and that they're in a in a stage of their lives where like them being queer or LGBT isn't the biggest isn't the biggest issue in their lives. Yes, and so yeah, and so because of. I think now, obviously, that Channel 4 show, It's a Sin, has been out, and that's kind of made us, like, reflect on the past, and that's yes. made me, like, really think and kind of value, especially, especially Black LGBT people, because it kind of made me think that, like, no matter what happens to me or anything that I've gone through, I can see people who are in the place that I was 20 years ago, and they're fine, and they're fine or relatively okay now. And, um, and that they've had the experiences that I've had, they've caught to the end of it, they've been able to survive under arguably much worse circumstances that, they, that we're in now. So I think it needs to be, or more, um, more, it needs to be kind of like put on the record or it needs to be said out there that we really need to be kind of like valuing the elders in our community and really like trying to remember the contribution that they've made to the lives that we live now. And I think it's especially important for us as like as black yes. people who have, have like historically lived more of a marginalized yeah. existence, you're able to see what you can do with the time that we have now. Firstly, it's a sin is absolutely brilliant. And I, mm -hmm. as somebody who lived through those times, it was mm -hmm. literally a, 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 a looking in the mirror. I mean, some of the conversation, some of the language, mm -hmm. some of the scenes. I, I have lived those scenes, so mm -hmm. I absolutely, you know, one hundred percent want to celebrate. It's a sin, and and you know, all 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 involved should be incredibly proud of it. And if you haven't seen it, make sure and see it. It is, it is just a piece of brilliant artistry. And mm -hmm. then the second thing that that you spoke about that I think is is is, is pertinent, um, you know, one of one of our issues. You know, where, where is that motivation within the Black uh, LGBT community here in the United Kingdom? You know, there, there are some great people doing that work. Mark Thompson, you know, doing brilliant work around, around LGBT visibility for Black people. Um, you know, I think we have to be responsible for our own visibility. They're not mm -hmm. going to give it to us. They're not going to give us a, a place on their platform, right? So we need to create our platforms and we need to be in control of that. Mm -hmm. Hundred um, I'm really glad that you mentioned that and kind of the idea of us really like taking the onus on ourselves to make sure we're here, make sure that we're present, make sure that uh, we're shouting as loud as we can, kind of for our own identity, our own lives, 
that, that I, I'd like all of that. I think we're all guilty of uh, becoming quite complacent in uh, um, this new century. Um, we think that uh, the battles, the big battles are won. Um, and of course, there's this complete disconnect with uh, uh, people on the community who have been left behind. You know, it, it, it absolutely stuns me how uh, the LGBT movement in the global north completely ignores the fact that we are still unapprehended criminals in former colonies of Britain. I mean, how can you not put that at one of the central tenets of your fight for equality? How can you leave us behind? And I'm pointing my finger at you, Stonewall. How the hell has Stonewall, the largest LGBT organization in Britain, not put this at the center of, of, of their battles? You know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. just shocking to me. But then again, you know, these are white-led organizations with very nice middle-class, cisgender, queer people who really don't give up, I'm trying not to curse, flying F about, about the rest mm -hmm. of us. You know, sure. these are people that are fighting for marriage equality so they can have a posh wedding at some nice, you know, castle out in the country. I don't want to hear about marriage equality. You know, I'm literally fighting to be not a criminal, right? Mm -hmm. And you're pushing for, for all of these other things. You know, of course, equality needs to be across the board and marriage equality is one of them. But when you focus on something that only benefits a small minority of our community, when literally millions of us around the world face criminalization because of laws from your country, I mean, come on, really? Mm -hmm. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm very, very pissed off with uh, LGBT organizations in Britain. Um, I, I, just, I just don't know where we, we are on, on that scale. You know, could you believe the first uh, person of color ever to lead an LGBT co uh, organization is uh, Lady Phil, um, founder of Black uh, Pride, Black UK yeah. Black Pride. First person of color to lead an LGBT organization in the world. Well global northward mm -hmm. you know i mean how mm -hmm. the hell i mean a, a, a black uh, woman uh gay black woman was just made head of uh, coc in in the netherlands again you know what the hell is going on we we don't sit on these boards we don't lead anything you know it's just like where are we where mm -hmm. are we and why are we not answering answering asking these questions mm -hmm. why are we not asking mm -hmm. Terence Higgins just did a photo the other day, a couple months ago, and in the lineup of the photo were a line of white gay men, Peter Tatchell, you know, a couple of the, of the names, and there was one black man in the line. Do you know they tagged every white man in that photograph and left out the only black man in the, in the, in the photograph, did not name him? And guess what? The black man in the photograph worked for Terence Higgins Trust. And when I made a fuss about it, and I pointed it out, and I said, what the hell are you erasing us now? They said, oh, yes, yeah, it was an oversight. It's always an oversight or an administrative error, and they always say there's nothing <laughs> behind it. And it happens too often. Um, it it reminds me of, there was, a, uh, there was a climate change photograph last year, wasn't there, with Greta Thunberg in the centre? Yeah. And then there's yeah. a, lady on the right, a black lady on the right-hand side, and she was thing. cut out. And, yeah. and it was said, oh, you know, because and there were people coming in, there were photographers saying, oh, you know, the, the ratio and the proportions of the photograph, it looked a bit awkward and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Thinking, well, you know, isn't it more important everyone's included? Blah, blah, blah. Than, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's...
There's always an excuse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. And that that hidden racism, that hidden Mm. prejudice, you know, we cannot fight it because there's always the, oh, I'm a racist. Oh, I didn't mean that. Oh, I, you know, this apologizing Mm. constantly. And no fool would have been for THT to stand up and say, we apologize. You know, here is a fabulous uh, uh, advocate for HIV AIDS who's been working in the field for a number of years and we apologize 100% for ignoring him in, in the tagging of the photograph. You know, how much more powerful was that? And it wouldn't have taken anything out of them. But to mm-hmm. skulk off into the night by removing the photograph completely. Oh, come on. Come on, THT. Yeah, that's, that's what we, we just need our own platforms, really. And I think that's mm. just... That's what it comes down to. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and it's, it, it happens in all sorts. Of, it happens every time there's some kind of award ceremony that comes up with, with Oscars or something. Like it's the same for all levels of society. We see yep. our, our own forms of media, our own platforms, and then yeah. this this problem will go away. Well, for the most. Part. Well, I I I think. I think you do have to create their own platforms. And I, I absolutely, I think that's important. And just as a person of color myself, I do love, you know, platforms that, that, that I feel comfortable in. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. as people of color in the UK, we are minority. So you do need these platforms. Um, of course, back home, all the platforms are black. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's a different See, argument yeah. there. But uh, definitely, I think you need to also fight the platforms that exist. You know, I am a shouty person. And I know everybody got pissed off with me at THT. And, they, you know, who's this mofo who's, you know, showing us that? <laughs> but I don't give a shit. I really don't. None of them put food on my table. None of them put a roof over my head. So I will mm-hmm. be shouty. And I will point it out. And I will make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't like me, you don't like me. I don't care. I wish I had a bit more of that energy to be honest with you. I'm going to say, I need to be I more really do. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a difference between doing like doing what's right and do and like doing like acting in what to do what's right and acting to do to be liked. And a lot of the time we um, kind yeah. of will dial things down so we will 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 be liked more. Yes. But we won't seem as radical or as yeah. being too much or getting into in too much to people's faces. I know that I've I've been I've been like that. I'm like that. Um, I like that quite often. So I think that you um, you serve as a really mm. great example to maybe not think so much about that to actually get stuff yeah. done. I feel like a lot of it is a product of growing up in British culture. The whole, you know, not wanting to cause a fuss and like propriety, and and it's um, I try to fight it, but when you've lived it all your life, sometimes it seeps into you, and it's hard to, it's like hard to shake off. But it is really, it's really yeah. like inhibitive as an as, as an attribute. So I just get rid of it because a lot of the time it's just it's just not helpful. Like you know, make mm-hmm. make noise like like you're saying, Jason. Um, I need to be more like that for, for sure. Well, you know, I I think you know when you are when you are the, the activist. Um, well, number one, you have to have a real passion and absolute uh, commitment to it because uh, there's no other way to live it. Because you do get all the labels, mm-hmm. you become the angry black man, the angry queer man, the angry this guy. You know, and yeah, I don't care about the label and if you want to call me angry anything go right ahead because I am pissed off so I'm good with the labeling but you know in terms of uh, what that uh, how that affects uh, your personal life you do end up quite isolated you know because people do want to have a comfortable environment and you know there's nothing wrong with that 
And I think one of the things that uh, I do say a lot to people who ask me about activism and what can they do, there are smaller things that you can do within, within your network, you know, that don't have to be as challenging as, you know, somebody like me or, or, or other activists. What you can do are very small things and all of those things, small things add up to create incremental change, you know? So I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't challenge people on, on the level of activism that they engage with. You know, a simple thing like sitting around the table with your family and somebody making a homophobic comment, just, you know, challenging them on that comment is enough, you know, because that person has now been changed. And that is a powerful way to transform. You know, it doesn't have to be in court and big like me. It could just be one-to-one and having that transformational moment with one person. That's important too. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering what the future holds for you, Jason. So, like the next few months or so, like what does that look like? What are you be getting up to? Well, um, uh, hopefully, uh, we will have a, a hearing date of the appeal court in Trinidad and Tobago soon. Um, mm-hmm. It really needs to happen this year because uh, after after that judgment. We then go to the Privy Council, and the wait time for a hearing at the Privy Council is three to five years. Um, I knew going into this whole thing at, in 2015 that it would take 10 years of my life. So, you know, if, according to the time schedule, if we get a hearing at the Appeal Court this year, then I should get a hearing at the Privy Council in 2025. So that's a time scale. So that is the focus for 2021. Um, I'm also working with uh, the team in Trinidad and Tobago on this visibility day to recognize the judgment in 2018. And um, a couple other things which are, which are on the back burner. So I'm, I'm, I'm as business, I'm really a bit of a workaholic, and I actually love being busy. So yeah, there are things that that will be coming in 2021. So watch this space. Maybe a good question would be like, how can we? So like, if anyone listens and they like want to support or they want to learn more, like how can we do that? Okay, yeah, sure. Well, I'm, as you said, I'm very active on social media, so people can mm-hmm. follow me on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. My handle is Trini JJ. T-R-I-N-I-J-A-Y-J-A-Y. You can find me there. And, you know, I'm, I'm completely accessible. You know, if anybody wants to reach out to me for any reason, please, you know, what is a, what is a young term? Slide into my DMs. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, 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 I'm happy to chat with anybody. And also, I think it's really important uh, for queer Black uh, people in the UK to also start getting incentivized in what we can, can, can be doing here in terms of community work. There's a tremendous amount of things that, that still need to be addressed and we still need to get our place at the bargaining table. Um, you know, the big organizations are not going to listen to us um, if we don't start challenging them and making sure that they open up space for us at, at, at their table. So, you know, I, I think hopefully coming out of this pandemic we, we can start having those conversations, like we said earlier about, you know, elderly black LGBT people, what are we doing to incorporate them back into our lives? Um, you know, trans community, what are we doing to make sure that our trans siblings are being supported? So yeah, let's, let's, let's take this pandemic and, and see it as a, as, a, as a diving board to get our community back together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
compare the like wise words uh, and probably um, the best time to uh, to uh, wrap up proceedings. So thank you very much, uh, Jason, for taking time out to join us to educate us. I feel like I've had a real yes. education. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Like Amy said, I've learned a lot, and it's been great to hear about like the courage you've shown and the persistence and just the waves you've made as well like here and also in trinidad also um thank you yeah just wow thank you no i'm very honored thank you so much so yeah we're black boy joy podcast um you are available on all all good streaming platforms spotify apple Podcasts, google podcasts if you subscribe to google sorry to apple podcasts you can leave us a, a glowing five-star review and um and a nice uh, some nice words only if they're nice if then if they're mean then just leave them leave them out um follow us on instagram we're at black boy joy podcast on twitter we're at black boy joy pod and any questions you can email us at black boy joy podcast at gmail.com so uh so jason your your, your tag was at trini jj on all platforms as well jj you say yes Yes. Yeah. yeah. You can find me everywhere on Trinity J. J Y J Y. Okay. Okay. Oh yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks again, Jason.